How could the Nazis construct a massive military machine in the middle of a worldwide recession and then launch a world war? The beginning of the answer seems to be that major American companies had invested in Germany in the 1920s when they had more than enough money. But once the Nazis took over, they skillfully rigged the business regulations so that the Americans and other foreign companies found themselves locked into the military production of the Third Reich. Well, a few successfully got out. A few, on the other hand, were sympathetic to the Nazis. But most simply belonged to a new breed of multinationals, deeply enmeshed with other companies around the world, that had little time for national borders and regulations, or for that matter, for right and wrong. Like today. They might be enabling the Nazis to invade, occupy and enslave the people around them, but so long as they were making money, they really didn't care. So why didn't their government stop them? It's good to see you at the History Café. Thanks for joining us. This is where we come to give a new take on history. We revisit well-known stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look right anymore. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Rosebank, and I suppose we have the best job in the world. I think we do. We take the latest research and we ask the questions that nobody else seems to, and we put it all into stories everyone can enjoy. So find yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see where we end up. The government of the United States and also the government of Britain were well aware of what was going on in Germany in the 1930s, but they did nothing to stop it. The first reason was that they were deeply divided within themselves, not about the evil of Nazism, but over what to do about it. The foreign policy of Franklin Roosevelt's administration, which took office from the 4th of March 1933, was deeply split between the Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, and the Secretary of the Treasury, from the 1st of January 1934, anyway, Henry Morgenthau. To be fair, the notion that economics was part of foreign policy was a new and little understood concept emerging after the First World War. Hardly surprising that government departments struggled to keep up with the shenanigans amongst the American companies that we've been investigating in this series so far. The cloaking and the rest of the behind-the-scenes dealing of the businessmen. Well, economists laugh at Henry Morgenthau as a gentleman apple farmer who knew nothing about economics. Makes you wonder who does know anything about economics. And it's true that Morgenthau did own a farm, an apple farm, that just happened to be next to Roosevelt's in upstate New York. The farm's actually still in the Morgenthau family and still growing apples. The British journalist Charles Hyam reports a popular story it's a story that one very cold day in 1933, the newly elected president was talking to his neighbour over the fence, as you do. Morgenthau says to Roosevelt, life's getting slow around here. So FDR replies, Well, Henry, how would you like to be Secretary of the Treasury then? Hmm? <laughs> well, the reality was less bizarre, but still surprising. Morgenthau was the son of Jewish immigrants. His father, a New York lawyer, had been US ambassador to Ottoman Turkey during World War I, which was a much more significant job than perhaps it sounds. Henry Jr. had grown up in comfort, studied agriculture and bought the farm. But he then also held a series of government jobs related to agriculture, and he and Roosevelt had become close friends. When Roosevelt became president, he made Morgenthau governor of the Federal Farm Board. But Morgenthau immediately created an impression in Washington. 
not least by involving himself in the highly complex business of gold and currency valuations. Highly complex, it certainly is. It's something we've skated all around in this series. Over breakfast in November 1933, Roosevelt suddenly announced that the Treasury Secretary, William Woodin, was sick and was resigning. The President told Morgenthau, let's you and I go on to bigger things. We'll have lots of fun doing it together. Morgenthau slowly realised that FDR was going to appoint him in Woodin's place. He wrote in his diary that he was dumbfounded. Well, Morgenthau indeed had no training in economics, not that that seems to help economists very much, but he was a shrewd, tough operator. And given his German-Jewish background, he showed a far greater grasp of what was happening in the Third Reich than anyone else in Washington. Eleanor Roosevelt called him her husband's conscience. Morgenthau saw through the German Reichsminister for Economics, Hjalmar Schacht. He was making tortuous attempts to play Britain, France and America off against each other. In 1936, Morgenthau proposed tariffs on German imports to the United States. And within months, surprisingly, Schacht had backed down on his latest attempt to manipulate German currency and subsidise their exports. Morgenthau followed up his success by persuading Roosevelt to negotiate a tripartite agreement with France and Britain to stabilise their currencies, a pact he successfully defended throughout the rest of the decade. It enabled the French to devalue their franc in an orderly way and start to get their economy working better. Well, this is impressive stuff. In 1937, Morgenthau was working behind the scenes to try to win further British cooperation and outflank Schach's latest currency manoeuvres. He told the British Chancellor of the Exchequer, one Neville Chamberlain, about whom we shall unfortunately have to hear much more, that financial diplomacy was the right way to prevent Hitler's plans. Well, of course, he was absolutely correct. The problem was, however, that Morgenthau was openly opposed by the American State Department, which was, of course, supposed to be in charge of US foreign affairs. Under Roosevelt, it was run by Secretary of State Cordell Hull. Judge Hull trained as a lawyer, but was in reality a career politician, becoming a Tennessee senator in 1931. He was earnest and over-serious, and Roosevelt appointed Hull to the State Department largely because of the crucial Dixiecrat support he could bring with him. You know, the notoriously awkward, conservative Southern Democrats. Hull and Roosevelt did not get on. And within the State Department itself, there were deep divisions, particularly after 1937. But the real problem was that Cordell Hull was a man with an obsession. Roosevelt's Treasury Secretary, Henry Morgenthau, made a number of efforts to stop Nazi Germany rearming. But again and again, he was blocked by Secretary of State Cordell Hull. Now, Hull was obsessed with the notion that the key to world peace was trade agreements. In his memoirs, he remembered, quote, When the war came in 1914, I was very soon impressed with two points. I saw that you could not separate the idea of commerce from the idea of war and peace. Wars were often largely caused by economic rivalry conducted unfairly. Toward 1916, I embraced the philosophy that I carried throughout my 12 years as Secretary of State. From then on, to me, unhampered trade dovetailed with peace. 
Well, as you can see, Hull resembled all too much the businessmen we've been discussing. He seemed to believe that if there was trade, there would inevitably be peace. Well, in some ways, Hull did some good. He negotiated a series of trade treaties with Latin America. And they went some way to repair the United States' bad but well-earned reputation in South America for interference. Which, of course, continues to this day. In 1938, Hull negotiated a trade deal even with Britain, despite the British policy of imperial preference, you know, favouring British colonies and dominions. But above all, Hull believed that free trade with Germany would undermine Nazi extremism and make Hitler's ambitions for conquest look pointless. Trade deals would spell an end to the economic nationalism that was tearing Europe apart. It would be, he said, economic disarmament. You could kill Nazism with kindness. Well, the upshot was that Morgenthau's attempts to stifle Germany's rearmament programme, like the restrictions he imposed on German imports to the States in 1936, were undermined by the American State Department. Hull's men negotiated new wordings to the restrictions that allowed the Germans to get around them. Otherwise, Hull complained rather implausibly, quote, it will break down our whole international trade programme. Well, in Hull's mind, Morgenthau's regulations were just an attempt to stack trade in favour of American businesses and would eventually lead to war. But in fact, Hull's new wording meant that the Germans were able to go on purchasing important American raw materials for their military, including cotton, petrol and copper and other things they didn't have for themselves. In 1938, as Hitler occupied Austria and much of Czechoslovakia, Roosevelt and Morgenthau found they were united in wanting to make a stand. But Secretary of State Cordell Hull prevented them, largely on the grounds that he wanted to keep up his trade deal with the British, who were, for their own reasons, as we shall see, letting Hitler do what he wanted. Hull argued that peace would depend not on the use of timely force, but on appealing to the self-restraint of Germany, Italy and Japan. Morgenthau consistently advocated using sanctions to hobble Nazi and incidentally Japanese preparations for war. And Hull equally consistently opposed them and also opposed any American rapprochement with the awful Soviets who might have helped to contain the Nazi threat. Well, we'll see much more of the rivalry between Morgenthau and Hull when we look at the shocking things that went on once war broke out. Charles Hyam, in his much-quoted book on the Americans in Germany, never seems to have grasped the importance of this clash. He simply thought that the State Department's interventions on behalf of companies trading with Germany were part of what he called the Nazi-American money plot. It was in reality something much simpler. Hull's idealistic belief that open trade would diffuse Nazism undermined the possibility that the Washington administration would take a tough line on trading with the Third Reich. As Henry Morgenthau saw all too clearly, and Roosevelt grasped when it suited him, Hull's policy was inevitably, in fact, going to lead to war, which of course would then destroy his whole pipe dream of free trade prosperity. But the weakness of the American administration was nothing when you compare it with the complete chaos that was going on in Britain. Now, we've left looking at the British part of this story until now, mostly because it's been complicated enough as it is. It's also that the British part is mostly about the 1930s, not the 1920s, and especially the years just before the war. 
But the British commercial companies were just as guilty as the American ones in bringing war about. And the shambles that was the British government was a great deal more guilty than anyone else, except, of course, the Nazis themselves. Yeah, it's laughable, if only it wasn't so serious. In what's now an old paper written in 1984, but still actually a key read, historian David Dilks took a hard look at the making of British foreign policy between the wars. What Dilks found was complete and utter total chaos. Foreign policy in Britain was divided between the Foreign Office and the India Office, the Colonial Office and the Dominion's office. And then there was the Board of Trade and the Treasury, and they were both drawn into foreign policy, just like Morgenthau and the States, because of the complexities of intergovernmental debt and currency exchanges. Besides all these, foreign policy had to take account of Admiralty, Air Ministry and War Office, besides the Committee for Imperial Defence, which theoretically took a strategic overview across all the armed forces. Then in 1930, the Committee for Imperial Defence established its own Industrial Intelligence Centre to try to get to grips with the consequences for security of economic change. Well, all that's before you get to the Cabinet, which had its own Foreign Office Committee, which was always divided within itself. And finally, of course, and sadly, there were Prime Ministers like Ramsay MacDonald and Neville Chamberlain who fancied themselves as world statesmen and consequently ignored everyone else and tried to run foreign policy themselves. Meanwhile, the British Foreign Office itself was still staffed in the 1930s almost exclusively from Eton. Oh, well, and that tells you most of what you need to know. <laughs> British foreign policy in the 1930s, if that is you can call it a policy, was hopelessly <laughs> carved up between an enormous list of competing departments. The Foreign Office itself was still in the 1930s recruiting almost exclusively from Eton College and unsurprisingly had a reputation for arrogant and lazy amateurishness. Like <laughs> the fountains in Trafalgar Square, it was said, the Foreign Office boys play from 10 till 4. <laughs> Well, at the start of the period, the Etonians and the Foreign Office paid most attention to what was going on in Italy, which would threaten the trade routes to India and on to the Far East. What was increasingly looking like the imminent disintegration of the empire was by far their biggest concern. They divided the world into regions. Germany fell into the central section and each pursued their own apparently uncoordinated policies. Sir Robert Van Sittart, the head of the Foreign Office, and so in theory in charge of them all, was sufficiently concerned about Germany to establish his own intelligence network there in 1933. So that was another bureaucracy messing about in British foreign policy. That year, he also established his own Foreign Office Economic Relations section. Yet another department. <laughs> How many departments is that? <laughs> Van Sittard became convinced that tough action was necessary to contain Germany, quotes, even at a cost to certain people there. He was right. He was right, just like Morgenthau. By which Van Sittard meant the British banks, which, like American businesses, had exploited Germany's economic difficulties between the wars, especially in the 1930s, and invested heavily there. Van Sittard did not want to cut Germany off, but he did propose limiting lending to short-term loans only. However... 
the baddie in Britain was one Orm Sargent, who had been head of the central section into which Germany fell, and in 1933 became Van Sittart's assistant. He was the loudest voice arguing that Germany needed protecting, treating with kid gloves for fear of provoking it into a war. Just like Cordell Hull, of course. And Van Sittart's new Foreign Office economics section at first agreed that bankrupting Germany would simply guarantee there was a war. The Committee for Imperial Defence, sitting, as you remember, across all the armed forces, wanted what was known as a lean Germany, too poor to pose a threat. Which makes sense. The government's chief economic advisor, Sir Frederick Leith Ross, Leithers to his colleagues, agreed, since he argued, Germany was simply using every fennec it possessed to build a war machine. Of course, that's absolutely right. But on the other hand, for a while, the Board of Trade seemed to think that economics had nothing whatever to do with politics. Of course and, not. <laughs> uh, well, Britain might as well make what profit out of Germany it could and compete with the Germans wherever possible. Meanwhile, Maurice Hankey, the very influential cabinet secretary, argued for both a booming trade with Germany and rapid rearmament. Well, confused, seems that in the 1930s you would not have been alone. Meanwhile, many in government believed that it was Britain's own sudden devaluation of the pound in 1931 and the beginning of imperial preference in 1932... Meaning giving preferential trade terms to the empire... ..that had, if not exactly caused Germany's economic problems, then made them much worse than they need have been. So, since some of it was Britain's fault, the decent thing to do would be to give careful British economic assistance to Germany. And if possible a deal with Hitler. It would be the best way to keep the peace. And then there was Montague Norman. Now, Montague Norman was governor of the Bank of England from 1920 to 1944. Quite a long time. 24 years. Maynard Keynes, the British economist, at this time a world authority, said of Montague Norman that he was, quote, always absolutely charming and always absolutely wrong. I really like what I hear about Maynard Keynes. (laughs) Montague Norman was known actively to dislike the French, just as, according to his secretary, he disliked Roman Catholics and Jews and chartered accountants and Scots. Though the last of these was, said the secretary, quotes, in a more good-humoured way. (laughs) (laughs) However, by contrast, Norman had a very soft spot indeed for the Germans. From at least 1923, he'd been a close friend of the banker and later Rice Minister for Economics, Halmar Schacht. Him, of course, the Americans called the old wizard. Indeed, Norman confided to the US ambassador in February 1939... 1939, this is a certain Joe Kennedy... ..that up till then... ..all of his information on Germany had come from Schacht. All of his information. Unbelievable. (laughs) From his best friend in Germany, the Rice Minister for For Economics. economics. Mm. Now, the Norman was also an Antonian... But the Foreign Office complained that they could never the talk to him. Foreign Office, which was full of Etonians. Complained that they could never talk to him since his office was not in Whitehall. It was two miles away across town. Impossible. Orm Sargent, uh, you remember the second in command of the Foreign Office, accused Norman of, quotes, running his own foreign policy. Well, what do you mean, like almost everyone, everyone else, else in London? <laughs> <laughs> well, joking aside, we should say in defence of these various bumbling bureaucrats that they found themselves in an unprecedented situation. 
The financial mess created largely by the Americans during and after the First World War had led everyone to policies of economic nationalism, each nation's government struggling to come up with regulations that would allow their own financiers and businesses to outcompete the others. Well, the machinery for setting it up and governing it simply did not yet exist. And now an extreme German government was cleverly exploiting the situation to pursue its own policy of military expansion. This new tangling up of domestic business, international business and international security was difficult enough without throwing in Adolf Hitler and his slippery banker, Hjalmar Schacht. By 1931, the British banks had thought that they were on to an economic winner. They'd been borrowing in Paris and New York at 2% and lending in Germany at 8%. How very decent. They had nearly 1,000 million Reichsmarks in short-term loans in Germany. But unlike money loaned in Germany by the French, the Swiss or the Danes, for example, many British loans went to towns and German banks who then re-loaned it on goodness knows what terms or security. Nobody apparently was bothering to check. Like the subprime mortgages. In the harsh economic winds after the Wall Street crash, it became obvious that Germany wouldn't be able to pay any of this back anytime soon, especially if the Americans and French continued to insist that Germany should go on paying punitive wartime reparations. In 1931 alone, seven British banks were technically insolvent because of their German liabilities. They were being propped up by Montague Norman at the Bank of England. Well, the result was an Anglo-German agreement on the 19th of September 1931. To make a fiendishly complicated agreement rather ridiculously simple, the British banks basically agreed not to call these loans in and to a moratorium on interest. Problem was that later Hjalmar Schacht would play havoc with this agreement, playing the creditors off against each other, promising to pay these and not those. He also succeeded in convincing many British financiers, and above all, of course, his good friend Montague Norman, that the German economy was still close to collapse and that if he, Schacht, were pushed, he would simply write off all the British debts. It was one of the old wizard's party tricks, and one he played over and over again. And as Norman and the other bankers knew, if the German economy did collapse, or if the Germans refused to pay their debts, it would take a significant proportion of the British banking sector down with them. Just as we see in our series on British enslavement, it became necessary to turn a blind eye to human catastrophe in order to protect the investments of London's financial institutions. Montague Norman now convinced himself that he alone, in private negotiations <laughs> with his friend Hjalmar Schacht, could save the world. <laughs> After 1931, Montague Norman, governor of the Bank of England, believed that saving Germany was crucial to world economic recovery, and in particular to rescuing the British banks. And that he alone, in negotiation with his old friend in Germany, Hjalmar Schacht, could do it. Well, almost every other nation negotiated a complicated process known as clearing in order to regulate German trade and restrict the games that Schacht could play with exchange controls. Well, I tried to find a simple way to explain clearing, just gave up. Doesn't really matter. It was a way to regulate the transfer of foreign exchange in... Oh, see what I mean? <laughs> Look, all you need to know is that pretty much every other country ended up imposing clearing 
in trade with the Third Reich. In an attempt to control them. In 1933, Schaft, for example, threatened to stop paying any interest at all on anyone's long-term loans from before 1931. The counter-threat by several other countries to impose clearing quickly brought about a German U-turn. But the fact was that German reserves of foreign currency were now so low that only by clearing agreements could its trade continue. No, don't ask what that's about. We'll be here all day. By 1935, 80% of German trade was in fact being conducted and controlled by clearing. But in Britain's case, Montague Norman at the Bank of England flatly opposed clearing. clearing. And it was widely understood that behind him, the city, in other words, London's financial institutions, agreed. There was a deep belief that Britain and Germany had historically had a special relationship and that if everyone behaved decently, everything would soon be all right again. The Anglo-German Payments Agreement of November 1934 was supposed to make clearing unnecessary. Historian Neil Forbes describes it as an old-fashioned piece of liberal economics, an attempt to steer Germany back to normal relations with the rest of the world. Another was a return to before the First World War. Never realistic. In practice, it simply gave Schacht much more room for manoeuvre. The Germans just raised new loans to pay off the old ones regulated by the agreement. Now, even the Foreign Office began to argue that repeated concessions to Germany were getting nowhere. But the Foreign Office was excluded from trade negotiations. It was the Foreign Office. And most banks and businesses went on arguing that getting tough on Hitler would simply cause the German economy to collapse and take them down with it. By 1934, as we've seen, there were plenty of American businesses deeply invested in the economy of Hitler's Third Reich. But American banks had by then withdrawn much of their money from Germany. It was the British banks that remained. Indeed, they now extended their positions in Hitler's Germany and took over as Germany's main creditor. Many loaned the Germans several times their own capital resources. Extraordinary. But British banking greed had not for the first or last time got the better of its judgment. By 1936, those loans were estimated to be worth only 30% of their face value. In 1937, Reginald McKenna, chair of Midland Bank and a former Chancellor of the Exchequer, openly declared that these loans were simply funding German rearmament. And especially the old loans on which the British weren't even getting interest because of that agreement back in 1931. Well, repeated negotiations with the Germans got nowhere. In fact, the terms offered by Schacht got steadily worse and worse. Even so, the British lenders hung on. Schacht had them in a kind of arm lock. If the German economy collapsed, the British bankers would lose everything. So they had better go on lending and paying for Germany to prepare itself for war. And alone among the nations trading with Germany the right-wing British governments of the 1930s did nothing about it. And that, of course, was largely because of the matter of the communists, as we shall see next time at the History Café. There are nearly a hundred podcasts at the History Café, all of them still as new as the day they were recorded. Go to our website, historycafe.org, and you can get a rundown on the research we've done and plenty of leads to follow if you still want more. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every other platform you can think of. Just look out for History Cafe Podcast with John and Penelope. If it's your thing... 
follow us on Instagram and what used to be Twitter at History Cafe Pod. And ask your friends to join us too. Thank you.